Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Brenda Sandberg, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is October 27, 2023. Depending on when you're listening to this, happy Halloween or happy preparation for Halloween. We've got some interesting FDA and pharma news for you while you load up on candy. First up is an update from the FDA on its recommendations for communicating scientific information on off-label uses. Brenda, what changes did the agency make? Well, this is a revision. It's a draft. It's a revised draft guidance on how firms can communicate scientific information about unapproved uses of approved products to healthcare providers, and it's a revision of a 214. 2014 draft guidance, which was itself a revision of a 2009 draft guidance, which focused on reprint practices. And this new guidance is much broader and and describes when companies can share firm-generated off-label information based on journal articles, clinical practice guidelines, reference text, and clinical trial results. And um, I I had a a really great conversation with Lisa Dwyer. Uh, She's a former senior policy advisor in the FDA commissioner's office who ran a working group on on the agency's off-label framework. And she said the guidance was a huge development as it effectively creates a new safe harbor for certain um, firm-generated communications. Um, Other lawyers also pointed out that the guidance for the first time specifies that firms can develop their own presentations of scientific information from a published reprint. And, and and they th- some lawyers have expressed concern whether the guidance will really lead to more flexibility in how FDA responds to off-label communications. The guidance describes what source publications would be scientifically sound and clinically relevant. Uh, and thus be appropriate to be the basis of a scientific communication. That seems to be a new evidentiary standard. Um, the guidance says controlled superiority trials are the most likely to provide scientifically sound and clinically relevant information, and other trials, too, um, could generate that um, well-designed, well-controlled trials could. It specifically says that real-world data and real-world evidence about medical products might be scientifically sound and clinically relevant, and it says studies, certain studies without an adequate comparison or control group. Um, wouldn't be uh, considered such. And the guidance also includes recommendations on how to present these scientific communications, um, such as having um, separate web pages for communications about uh, approved uses versus unapproved, and uh, dividing um, booth space at exhibit halls to make um, it clear that there's a separate space about off-label use communications. Um, just one last thing I, I wanted to point out. Um, Lisa Dwyer uh, made this observation was very interesting about the precursor to this um, draft guidance. Um, during Ameren's litigation against FDA over its communications about its fish oil pill, Vesepa, um, Janet Wilcock said that uh, the agency wouldn't object if Ameren uh, disseminated summaries of the results of a VSEPTA trial 
to healthcare providers as long as they were truthful, non-misleading, and unbiased. So th this gu new guidance, in a way, is um, you know is, is extending what what um, the agency did with Amaranth for in, to make it an industry-wide policy. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, do do you think we're going to see? like a dramatic expansion in this sort of communication now of, you know, off-label on off-label use now that it, you know, it feels like there's a little more of a, a window to do that. And, you know, I know, you know, firms have been, you know, kind of, you know, cagey about wanting to do it in the past just because they don't want to get in trouble. Um, I, I don't know if there'll be like an explosion of it. I think it just gives uh, companies, um, you know, more comfort that they can do this without, you know, generating an enforcement action by FDA. I mean, it's very, it provides like sort of ground rules for what kind of, what kind of scientific communications would um, be okay and um, how to present them. So I, 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 some lawyers think, well, it remains to be seen, you know, how FDA is going to respond to to communications. They, as, as you know, there's, they, this is the latest in a whole slew of guidances on um, off-label communications. There's been there's been guidances about uh, communications to payers, and um, I'm trying to remember all the other ones. Um, payers and formulary committees, and um, th that was one that I can think of. But there's been many that have uh, have been issued, and 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 I haven't seen much um, action, enforcement action that FDA has taken uh, against uh, companies for their off-label communications that used to be uh, much more prevalent. But of course, the First Amendment litigation from Ameren and Coronia, you know, kind of put the brakes on FDA a little bit in that regard. But how much of this uh, revision is uh, FDA just for kind of catching up with those court cases and aligning itself with sort of, kind of the uh, current jurisprudence and how much of these frequent revisions it still feels like, at least, uh, uh, you know, in the last uh, um, 15 years or so, is for kind of a change in FDA's thinking. Uh, is it simply that you're kind of having to kind of uh, match what uh, they're being told by uh, by judges, or is it uh, um, a growing comfort within the FDA about for different kinds of data and sort of kind of how it's uh, how it's presented? Um, they didn't mention any of the in 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 the past. FDA has mentioned when they made changes, they have mentioned the previous court cases, but they didn't in in, in issuing this guidance. And I don't I I don't know that 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 particularly pertained to this. Um, I mean, it, it the Ameren example shows that it was an issue in that case. So this might be like a you know a, a follow-on to what it had to deal with in litigation but it seems maybe it's more the latter po point that you made that you know just becoming more comfortable with with what's out there or could be out there Brenda there also was a, a mention in your story that it's it, it that I think I'm saying this right that it's unclear who's responsible for creating communications about scientific information on un, unapproved uses, um, including yeah. who at the company can be involved. I mean that that seems like kind of a big question that needs to be answered. Yeah, yeah. Lisa Dwyer had mentioned that like the unanswered questions that that the guidance doesn't address. So yeah. This is just me being because I'm a wonk and I find these things funny. I also thought it was funny that they had to, 
they they recommended separating everything in the booth, the trade set, the trade mm-hmm. show booth. I mean, I could totally see like piles of off-label papers and on-label papers getting mixed up, and then somebody getting an untitled letter for that. You know, right. or like the signs are too close together, or something. You know, something, something like that. I mean, you know, that's probably funny to me and like maybe five other people. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, well, you know, it was the Office of um, Prescription Drug Promotion that that uh, put together this uh, this draft guidance um, with, with input from other uh, other centers, other. Uh, portions of FDA, but uh, I was thinking, I didn't uh, have time to go back and look through when I saw this reference to booth exhibits. They have issued uh, untitled letters or warning letters to companies in the past about how they presented information in their in their exhibit halls, but I, I don't know if it was unapproved information. It was just like when they made like certain claims about how they, how they presented information. I've always heard that uh, uh, print advertising uh, for pharmaceuticals was a great uh, uh, business for uh, newspapers and magazines just because of the uh, requirement of all the uh, the small black and white uh, 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 type, the disclosures, the uh, um, uh, the brief summary and uh, um, so forth that they had to include. I wonder if this will be a, uh, a boon for uh, um, medical conferences because companies will sort of kind of uh, add to their booth spaces at these uh, um, exhibit halls that are kind of to uh, oh. include their uh, additional uh, off-label information. Yeah, you got to buy two of them, two of those little stalls now, because you got to have one for your on-label and one for your off-label. <laughs> well, we'll have to see what happens, Brenda. Thanks. Next, we're going to look at Medicare Part B. Our colleague Kathy Kelly wrote an interesting piece on the effect negotiated prices could have on prescribing. Kathy can't be with us today, but Sarah, can you give us the rundown? Yeah, so um, some of you know the um, negotiated drugs um, of the first set of um, drugs selected under the IRA's um, new government powers to negotiate some drugs in Medicare will be Medicare Part B drugs. And because in Part B, you know, we talk about that as sort of like a buy and bill system, right? Doctors sort of buy the drugs and hold them. Um, and then they get reimbursed in Medicare at this average sales price plus 6% methodology and oftentimes sort of a similar way in the commercial insurance. There's a concern that basically what happens is, is that the negotiated prices, they're going to lower the ASP, but doctors might not necessarily be purchasing the drugs for less money. Um, so that could lead to essentially them, um, you know, being underwater, not making back what they're spending to purchase the drug, um, and that that may shift either what they prescribe um, patients if there's, you know, something that's seen as, you know, acceptable to use in its place, or maybe even like they'll shift site of care. So maybe they'll, um, you know, recommend they get their, you know, infusions or something at a hospital where um, billing or reimbursement might be different. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting, and it's a theme, I think, that has come up over the years anytime um, policymakers try to address drug costs in Medicare Part B. Um, the way doctors get paid sort of makes it hard to deal with that issue because sometimes, right, you end up sort of impacting their bottom lines. Like one thing I thought was pretty interesting in Kathy's story um, 
at the end, you have um, someone talking about how manufacturers may need to think about whether they do need to lower their prices of these drugs in the commercial sector as well to match the Medicare negotiated price. Because otherwise, like if doctors do shift their patients to other sites to get these products, that might end up being worse for the manufacturers because they might shift them to like entities that are eligible for 340B prices where manufacturers have to provide big discounts. So, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that always makes the U.S. healthcare system interesting is we don't have, we have so many different, right, markets and players. And when you make policy that impacts just one portion of it, you know, so just Medicare, but it then has these weird, you know, consequences and shifts for the other part of the market and, figuring out what all those sort of unintended consequences or shifts may be can be um, quite challenging. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it, I think people forget that it's not, it, it's all like a big interconnected kind of web, like spider web type of structure, where if you do one thing, you pull one strand, all a bunch of other strands get pulled with it, even though you're not, that's not what you're actually trying to do. But I know having different options for for Medicare and commercial insurance patients. That was one thing that that had that uh, Kathy had mentioned. That's not ideal from an efficient, you know, a completely efficiency standpoint. But I mean, the argument isn't that necessarily Medicare patients would get substandard therapy, right? No, I mean, I think the um, you know the people she um, talking about this. In their story, we're, we're suggesting, right, these would be like alternatives endorsed by, you know, like National Comprehensive Cancer Network compendium, you know, guidelines and, um, you know, practices that are, are, are recommended and seen as sort of equivalent to some extent. Um, again, there, it's not going to necessarily be like you're getting a biosimilar, right? Um, instead of the drug, though, you know, this isn't like a case where, right, people are getting sort of the exact same product, but they're saying, right, they might see if they could shift to a product that is, you know, seen as an appropriate alternative, um, but maybe not necessarily the one they might have initially decided to use. So is there a chance that reimbursement rates get changed to ensure the physicians don't stop prescribing the products that are negotiated? I mean, I haven't heard anything else about this. I mean, certainly, I think over the years, there's been different pushes to um, overhaul, you know, how we pay for these sorts of physician-administered drugs and get away from this ASP plus 6% system because it's it's not necessarily seen as the most rational way to handle it because there does become these sort of perverse incentives for doctors to potentially prescribe higher cost drugs. That said, you know, various attempts to um, tackle that have been met with a lot of pushback. So, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. And I, I imagine to some extent, you know, Medicare is quite busy with the very, very fast implementation of the IRA. I'm, I'm not sure how much of in a position they'd be now to like, you know, really shake up um, this Part B system either. Yeah, there's a lot of worry about how the IRA may affect uh, drug development, what kind of drugs get developed, uh, you know, biologic versus small molecule, uh, the impact on uh, orphan drugs. Uh, um, 
uh, all the things that we've talked about uh, um, over the last uh, um, uh, year or so as this has been uh, rolled out. And this seems to be another uh, one that's sort of kind of could uh, make some subtle but profound shifts that sort of kind of uh, aren't going to sort of uh, happen right away, but it uh, could really impact the uh, the treatment landscape if this sort of kind of if uh, you know uh, patients start getting different kinds of uh, cancer care or they get their cancer care in different locations. It could really sort of kind of change uh, um, how uh, how the whole ecosystem works, and it's just one of these uh, uh, interesting uh, uh, after effects of sort of a uh, a law that's sort of kind of you know is billed as you know we're simply just sort of kind of uh, reducing the price for uh, um, the American taxpayer, but it's it's not just that; it's a lot of other things that will will uh, will flow from that. It's it's interesting to think about kind of bringing this full circle back to the FDA, you know, they they look for all sorts of, you know, they they beg for le- levers to change prescribing habits in some cases. I keep thinking of opioids. And here's one that's not even intended. And it's, you know, seems like at least it, it, it could happen. So it's a it's a it's a interesting issue. It sounds like they're in they're They're kind of in a, between a rock and a hard place, maybe on that. Thanks, Sarah. Finally, we're going to return to the NIH. NIH Director nominee Monica Bertignoli made it through the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee this week. The committee voted 15 to 6 to send her nomination to the full Senate, even though Chairman Bernie Sanders voted against her. Sanders said he wanted an NIH leader interested in lowering drug prices and that would take the NIH in a different direction. But if Bertignoli is not interested in doing that, as Sanders suggested, then the pharma industry likely is breathing a sigh of relief. Committee committee ranking member Bill Cassidy said one of the reasons he was voting for her was because she would not commit to using what he called extreme and counterproductive policies like margin rights and reasonable pricing clauses. The vote ultimately was bipartisan, with several Republicans joining Democrats to vote in favor. Pushing NIH to demand lower drug prices may be only a Bernie Sanders issue, but I'm curious if you all think the country's premier research entity should be taking a more active role in this. I mean, could this just be, do you think this is just going to be kind of a ongoing complaint when, assuming she's confirmed, goes when Bertignoli goes up to Capitol Hill, or is this something that she's actually going to have to, you know, deal with? I think the, uh, um, it is something you're going to have to deal with, uh, certainly as long as, uh, um, you know, Bernie's to the top the, uh, um, health committee and uh, um, can uh, you know uh, hector her about this uh, um, as he sees fit. The uh, parallel I see is we're kind of and you mentioned in your story, Derek, is her caliph and uh, opioids and sort of kind of how that sort of uh, you know held up his uh, two nominations to uh, to run FDA. And there's obviously been a lot of sort of policy work uh, on his end once he's been at FDA to uh, um, to to adjust how the uh, um, how that agency approaches opioids. Uh, you know, she obviously, unlike Caleb, did not make a pledge to uh, um, to make changes, but I think it will, without question, uh, change how they they think about these things. It may not uh, um, change how they're implemented, at least uh, certainly not in the short term, but it's going to be sort of just for kind of more um, a, a headspace uh, um, constraint than, uh, than anything else is going to be uh, um, picking up their time to consider the political ramifications, perhaps, of uh, of various things that they're doing, and uh, you know that will, uh, in uh, in some small respects, probably detract from uh, um, other things she wants to do because she now has this on her plate. So it's uh, um, it's going to have uh, um, you know some sort of small negative effect, is my prediction. 
Yeah, I mean, we we all we all thought for a while that FDA didn't you know consider pricing when it was making decisions, and then Scott Gottlieb came in and said, you know, affordability should be an issue that we look at, and you know, by I mean, he wanted to create more competition with more generics and so forth, but you know, it's not un- completely unprecedented for a you know uh, an, an entity like like that to you know to kind of if you want to call it change direction or, you know, like you said, you know, kind of change their just, you know, have it in the back of your mind that we're thinking about this, you know, when we, when, you know, when we do things like award exclusive licenses for, you know, for inventions and, and so forth, and maybe that, you know, maybe that could be a good thing. I don't, I don't know. Speaking of licensing, he, Sanders also complained this week to NIH about it exploring about it awarding an exclusive license to commercialize an HPV cancer treatment that it had developed. He again argued that NIH should be trying to lower drug prices rather than promote high prices. But I'm not sure what they could do in that situation. I think he offered to he said that they should um, try and you know offer non-exclusive licenses of the product, but. You know, I, again, I don't know. I don't know if the NIH can change its whole process along along those lines to kind of make pricing uh, more of an, a uh, you know consideration. Yeah, if uh, drug development really were as uh, simple as uh, um, Sanders uh, suggested is, I think uh, somebody would have already come along and sort of kind of undercut all these uh, these uh, these companies and sort of kind of just sort of kind of done it straight with uh, with NIH and uh, you know sort of kind of uh, uh, kept half the uh, uh, half the uh, um, give give them a better deal, and then uh, you know we're going to just rule them out themselves. <laughs> but it, it doesn't doesn't quite work out like that, despite what the senator from uh, Vermont would like to believe. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think you could really. It's it's hard to see how you do non-exclusive licenses and um, convince companies to to develop and commercialize the drugs. Obviously, the lever the levers advocates have been pushing the government to use, and in other cases, Sanders has been pushing the government to use is. Um, you know, whether you can, um, you know, somehow when you award these licenses, you know, build things into the contracts to try and control the prices um, a bit more once they are commercialized. Um, Obviously, again, um, Sanders sort of seems to stand a bit alone on this issue right now um, in Congress in terms of how strongly um, he feels about that, uh, that or at least about the government using that particular, those particular levers to get affordability. Yeah, it's an interesting issue. We'll see what uh, you know what develops here. And you know, quite frankly, if Bertignoli gets through the Senate, I don't know if you know whenever you know when that's going to happen, if it happens at all. Yeah, I I can't think of a uh, another instance where uh, you know Sanders sort of voted with uh, um, some kind of very sort of kind of uh, um, uh, the more conservative bloc in the Senate on this uh, um, on this question. Their their objections to. Uh, um, to her in the committee, where we're kind of all along for COVID and uh, gender affirming lines, it, it sounded like, and uh, it uh, um, doesn't mean that sort of kind of uh, either one of those, uh, um, either pricing or uh, those more, uh, um, you know, uh, cultural issues would uh, pick up uh, um, pick up steam in the in the uh, um, in the on the floor for the the confirmation. But it's just sort of kind of a uh, another one of those sort of strange bedfellows, uh, Washington situations where sort of kind of uh, people are criticizing. Uh, um, somebody from uh, very, uh, very different positions. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Brenda Sandberg, and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 